This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, the BC government plans to clear the backlog of 30,000 procedures postponed due to COVID-19 by hiring just about every graduating nurse this year. Um, nursing has always been a great career. And I think for the past many years, um, there's been lots of opportunity for employment as um, the care models change and we expand into community, etc. If you've passed Oppenheimer Park in the past few days, you'll see something new. They're out and <clears throat> relocated into hotels and, and other accommodation. And as you said, the, uh, the city and the park board uh, have secured the site and the process of restoration of, of the park is, has begun. And what could Vancouver's restaurant industry look like as businesses scramble to adapt to this new world with COVID-19? Oh, I'm like everybody. I'm hanging in here. And yeah, I miss the thing that I've done, you know, a lot of my life, which is run my little restaurant on 4th Avenue and Kitts. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Well, all over the world on this Monday, we are hearing and reading about stories where things are opening up, provinces, states, countries, their economies are starting to try to slowly recover from what's been going on. Now, Canadians, many of us have been sheltering at home for weeks now, and you face the prospect of returning to work. But if you are headed back to the office soon... Brace yourself, you may not recognize it when you get there because companies are busy deploying a wide range of technologies and protective measures to help keep their staff and customers safe. To talk more about that, we're joined now by Jeff Semple, senior correspondent for Global National News. Good morning, Jeff. Hi, good morning. Great to be with you. Nice to have you here. So tell me, what are some of the things that employers are doing to get ready for employees coming back to work? Yeah, uh, it's it's a quite a range of uh, different measures that are being put in place, uh, depending on the business, of course, right across the country. Uh, some of the ones you know you might expect to see, depending on the business, employers or employees are being required to wear face masks, for example. Um, you know, in some cases, we're seeing plexiglass barriers being you know constructed in between desks at the office or in between chairs in a cafeteria. Uh, a lot of businesses going much further than that, though. We've seen one popular item popping up in a lot of businesses, thermal imaging cameras, like you you know, sometimes right. expect to see in a hospital, are now being installed on the entranceways of some businesses. And, of course, those can scan an employee before they enter the, bu- enter the building, take their temperature. Uh, we saw one being deployed just this morning at the Toyota manufacturing plant in southwestern Ontario, where employees come in. If, you, if you've got a fever, anything more than 37.2 degrees, you're flagged, they take your temperature again, and if you have a fever, you're not allowed to even enter the building. Um, so that's a popular one. And another one, uh, new technology being deployed in a way I don't think we've ever seen before, smartphone apps that employers are requiring their workers to download, these so-called contact tracing apps that we've seen some governments um, deploying right. around the world that track a person's GPS smartphone location, the thinking being that if that person were to then test positive for COVID-19, they could retrace their steps and look back everywhere they've been, everyone they've had contact with in recent days so that they could contact those people and tell them to watch for symptoms and self-isolate. Right. That sounds like a big one, too, because I know in BC we've been talking about this, but they haven't really picked one that they like yet. There's a whole bunch of them, aren't there? 
Yeah, there are. Uh, we've seen, I mean, I haven't, I haven't even managed to count. We have counted the number of countries we've got. I think there are around 50 apps that have been deployed in more than 25 countries around the world. So, you know, wow. a lot okay. of these apps popping up. We saw one just, just uh, deployed in Alberta. There's an important distinction, though, in that most of these apps, from what we've seen, use the GPS locator in your, in your smartphone, which tracks your location. And, you know, it's perhaps not surprising that that is proving problematic for some yeah. people citing privacy concerns. And that has been the big concern. I think governments in B.C. And, and, you know, across the country have been reluctant to use these apps because it tracks a person's location. And that's a problem because governments require, you know, we've seen from studies, Simi, that at least 60 percent of a population would need to download an app like this for it to work. Um, so you need people to buy in. So governments, you know, are trying to wait and see if they can find technology. We're waiting to see what Apple and, and Google come out with. They've promised a, a more privacy conscious solution that would right. use Bluetooth technology instead. But employers don't have to ask you. They can, you know, require you to download huh. an app like this uh, and to use it while you're at work, according to one employer, employment lawyer I spoke with. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a choice that could be facing some employees as they head back to work about, you know, how to, whether to download this thing knowing that it would allow their employer to track their location. Um, and, you know, we've heard concerns that it could be repurposed uh, for other things besides COVID-19. You know, for example, an employer looks and says, oh, you know, you haven't been spending much time at your desk lately. Uh, you seem to be over here chatting Oops. with your colleague most yeah. of the day, right? So most of these apps stress that, the, the you know, the technology is meant to be used anonymously, but it's conceivable, of course, that it could prove to be a, a Trojan horse and be used in these other ways. Oof. okay. More for us to talk about. Jeff, thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. Jeff Semple, Senior Correspondent for Global National News, talking about contact tracing and apps. Whether this comes to your workplace or not could be soon. Let us know what you think about that. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. The plan with respect to nurse recruitment is approximately 400 nurses. It's our hope to hire all the graduating nurses this year and to significantly increase training so that nurses who are existing in the system can upgrade skills if that's required. Okay, so that was Provincial Health Minister Adrian Dix talking last week about how they are planning to clear this backlog of 30,000 procedures or elective surgeries that had been postponed because of COVID-19. You heard him say it, they hope to hire every single graduating nurse this year. I've never heard of anything like that before. And of course, this all just came a few days before National Nursing Week. Wanted to talk more about these developments. Joining us, Shelley Fraser, Associate Dean of Nursing at BCIT. Shelley, good morning. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. What has been the reaction at the nursing school there at BCIT, given the idea that all the nurses could be hired coming out of school? Well, I don't think this is a new phenomenon. Nursing's always been a great career. And I think for the past many years, um, there's been lots of opportunity for employment as um, the care models change and we expand into community, etc. So um, we had 87 nurses graduate uh, this past month at BCIT and all of them, um, or many of them in fact, have been given full time and will join um, the health authorities at the front line. Full time though, like wouldn't it be usual for them to get like a part time job? I remember when it was hard to even get that. Yeah, there, there are trends, just like any profession. There are trends, definitely, that see sort of peaks and waves. But I think at this point in time, um, many will get full-time jobs as we need them in the health authorities. So does that make it busier and tougher to get into the nursing program? What is demand like? Well, demand as well has always been high. I think we're able to fill all our seats quite easily um, with very high-quality candidates, in fact. 
Um, I think uh, there'll probably be more demand and more interest. It's been a very exciting year for nurses in general. Um, Before the pandemic began, the World Health Organization had dedicated 2020 to the year of the nurse and the midwife, which I think raised the profile tremendously. Um, And I think with the pandemic, um, the profession has been highlighted as um, leaders in global health. Um, And so it's been very exciting. Has there been talk about expanding the programs? I know that's something else that BC had discussed in recent years about essentially training more nurses. Well, I think we take direction from the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Advanced Education. Uh, We're in close communication, uh, looking at trends, looking at uh, seats in schools, etc. And so uh, we would always be responsive to suggestions or dialogue. Um, At this point in time, our program... um, admit 64 students three times a year, so it's a significant number. Um, we have to ensure that we have trained faculty in order to support the students. So there's a, it's complex. There's right. a lot of um, issues to think about. And how does that, so you're graduating all these nurses, other schools are graduating nurses as well. How does that keep up with the number of nurses who are retiring? Uh, well, retirement is an issue. Uh, we know that our demographic is, um, I don't know the specific number, but nurses Um, By and large, as a profession, um, there's an older demographic that's set to retire, and it is worrisome. Um, In my personal faculty, which is a context I can speak to, um, many have decided to to stay on and and defer their retirement to help help during this time. As you know, the ministry set up a registry, and I think over 200 retired nurses signed up again to help out during this time. So I think everybody's wanting to be in it for the long haul and make sure that the, you know, the, the the citizens of British Columbia are safe. So is there a waiting list or can people apply for a program? How soon can they start? Uh, there is a waiting list. Well, we, we do um, applications per uh, entry. Um, so it's open applications and uh, we sometimes get close to three to 400 applications and then we select 64 of the top candidates. Anybody's welcome to apply. Um, certainly um, they could apply more than once and that's often happens where uh, nurse or applicants been unsuccessful and they've brushed up on their skills, um, either volunteer work or extra post-secondary credits and they've applied a second time and, and we've welcomed them into the program. And yeah, what are the requirements then to get in? Uh, well, we ask for a certain number of post-secondary credits. Um, so we do expect some general courses at the postgraduate level. Um, we also do um, a screening process. So we look at people's marks, um, what they did in high school, as well as their marks in the post-secondary um, credits. And then there's a few other items that our administrative people take care of um, in order to ensure we have a really high caliber of candidates. And we're always welcome. We have a big open house two times a year. And um, we always have a nursing booth there as well as a specialty, trades booth, all kinds of programs. And people are welcome to come, bring their parents, bring their friends and and hear hear and learn about the programs that we offer. Right. So, Shelley, is it fair to say, though, right now you just can't turn out nurses fast enough? Yes. I mean, it it is something that we're considering. But like I said, I think we collaborate with the health authorities um, and the ministry and we look at trends and we tried our, you know, we we tried to work together to look towards, you know, five years forward, 10 years forward, etc. More challenges out there. Shelley, thank you. Thank you. And if I could just give a shout out to all the nurses on National Absolutely. Nurses Week and the theme of Voice to Lead, Nursing the World to Health, and uh, May 11th to 17th. You got it. Thank you so much. <laughs> 
Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. That is Shelley Fraser, the Associate Dean of Nursing at BCIT. Yes, it is the kickoff to National Nursing Week. What a great week to be saluting nurses when we, of course, are in the middle of this situation that helps us to recognize how important nurses are out there. Also keep in mind with BCIT, that's one nursing school, uh, right? They do intake three times a year. Langara has a nursing program. UBC has a nursing program. So there are several nursing programs around the province, and they are all uh, keeping very busy these days. As you heard Shelley Fraser say, they pretty much expect all of their graduates uh, to get full-time jobs as soon as they graduate. Now, that's not something you could say very often about a lot of different lines of work, but for nursing, that is the case these days. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, one of the countries that is often held up as having done a good job in this whole pandemic is South Korea. So no surprise there that they started to reopen the economy. However, that effort may have stalled now that there is concern about a second wave of infections that apparently has been spread through nightclubs. Yeah, they reopened nightclubs. Now that's the challenge, right, for jurisdictions everywhere. What is that balance between reopening and new COVID-19 infections? Well, we wanted to talk more about this also using Denmark as an example here because they are opening retail stores today. So we thought we'd check in with Shane Woodford, freelancer in Denmark, former, of course, CKNW reporter. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, Simi. How are you? Good, thank you. So how has the reopening been going in Denmark? Where are you at there? Yeah, we're uh, we're beginning phase two. Uh, you referenced South Korea there, just so you know, uh, no bars and nightclubs are open here and likely won't be until sometime in August at the earliest. They'll be part of a phase four. Um, that is, if they don't bring the hammer down between now and then and things don't go wrong. So today, as you mentioned, retail stores are opening uh, next week, it's going to be uh, school kids from grade six and up will be able to return to school. Uh, next week, we'll see restaurants, cafes, uh, reopen libraries, churches, mosques and synagogues, that kind of thing. Uh, the big deal today, of course, is the shopping centers, the major shopping centers, big malls as well. Um, they're all reopening their doors, but they're doing it with some really, really strict rules. I mean, like what? Well, social distancing figures pretty prominently, so they've basically come up with a a formula for the floor space of each business. So, for example, if you're a retail store and you're under 2,000 square meters of floor space, then you have to ensure that there is four meters squared for every customer in the store to ensure social distancing. You move up to 2,000 to 5,000 square feet, that number uh, goes up to eight meters squared per customer and so on. Uh, they're also mandated to protect staff as much as possible. Uh, so they'll up to and including perhaps glass or plastic barriers. Um, they're saying that to limit the actual contact between people in store and employees. So if you're in an H&M, for example, here, uh, you may not see a store employee wandering up and saying, hey, you doing okay with that? Can I help you with anything? You might actually have to seek them out from a safe distance and sort of ask for some help there. Uh, even staff lunchrooms and uh, behind-the-scenes facilities have to ensure that staff can eat and do whatever they're doing back there uh, from a safe distance. Uh, any kids' play areas in the business must be closed, uh, and retail outlets have to ensure, for example, that if a senior shows up or somebody who's immunocompromised, uh, that they can figure out a way to get them in the store and do what they have to do with as least infection risk as possible. Um, they are also been told to reconfigure their floor space as much as possible to prevent bottlenecks. This could mean, for example, you might enter the store on sort of one side or one door and then work your way through in a method that you come out in, in sort of a separate door or separate 
area. That's not uncommon right. here, actually. I know a few stores in Denmark that are sort of naturally fitted like that. Um, lots and lots of cleaning. I mean, anything where somebody's touching bathrooms, that kind of stuff, they've got to be cleaned religiously. Uh, sick employees got to be sent home. No going back to work until you're, you're 48 hours free of infection and lots and lots of signage for people. Do you think people are ready then to go back to the stores, back to the mall? I think some will, and I think that's the that's the big questions. I mean, there's two overarching questions over this. Number one, you know, is each move that we do to reopen society and reopen the economy, and you mentioned South Korea off the top, you know, you, you heighten the risk of possibly seeing that second wave. So there's that question. The other question is, is can you lead a horse to water and will it drink? I mean, you can... You can say you're going to reopen the economy. You can say you're going to reopen malls. You can say you're going to reopen airports, for example. But the real big question is, until there is a vaccine or some kind of proven treatment to reduce mortality, will people show up? Or will people say, you know what, it's just not worth it? My sort of rough sense here is that you're going to see some people show up and some people will be really cautious and maybe kind of ease into the idea. And I think a lot of that sort of older population will probably kind of stay home. Yeah, let's talk about what's happening in Sweden. I saw you tweeting about this over the weekend. Is on the one hand, they mm. think that they did a successful job, but on the other hand, the government is saying, we failed our seniors. Yeah, uh, you and I have talked about this before. Sweden seems to be on this sort of public relations exercise or an exercise for uh, the government to stay face on its so-called strategy. I mean, by any parameter that you put on Sweden, they have failed. Um, as we talk right now, they've got 26,670 total cases. Uh, that's over 1,000 cases less than every other Nordic country, Denmark, Norway, Finland combined. Uh, you go to deaths, 3,256 deaths right now in Sweden. That's three times combined Finland, uh, Norway, Denmark, the amount of deaths there. Uh, when you say you're failing seniors, you know, you can't say your plan is working. Seniors, by definition, are the single largest at-risk group and the single source of most of the deaths that we're seeing. So if you're failing that group, then you, you simply cannot say with a straight face your strategy is working. And I think, I just think that they're losing that argument. Again, you know, this is an open-ended argument because maybe as we see the second wave or a third wave or however this plays out, maybe the numbers game equalizes itself. But right now, by by no metric is Sweden a success. In Denmark, then, what is your feeling from people? Is that they want to take this slowly, or are they being are they impatient to get back to normal? No, I, I mean, there's some always an underlying impatience. I think you know, people want to see their family and they want to see their friends and they want to hug their grandchildren, and, and that's certainly understandable. I think Denmark is a is a pretty you know rational country. People here. Um, Really, I mean, when there's no demonstrations against the rules, and uh, there's, I haven't seen any craziness anywhere here at all. Um, people here seem to be very cognizant of the threat, and they are looking at what the government is doing and saying, "Okay, that makes sense. Uh, it sucks. I want to do these things, but we're going to buckle down and make it happen." I, I mean, there's some debate over certain things. For example, today to me, they denounced that they're going to reduce the social distancing requirement. It was two meters. They've dropped that down to one. So you see debate around, right. oh, you know, what's this about? Is is this a science-based decision? Um, you know, why did they do this? But it, it seems to be a sort of an intelligent, rational debate as opposed to sort of a crazy hijacked debate by some kind of fringe element. So I think people in Denmark generally are, are more than willing to kind of play ball. Well, we'll probably talk to you next week. I understand school is getting back in for children yeah. in grades six and up, what, next Monday? 
yeah, next Monday we're going to see right. uh, schools open up, cafes, restaurants. The school thing's interesting because we talked about the spacing challenges just for uh, schools from yeah. you know daycare up to grade five. Well, as I said before, the, some of those kids are using the empty older kids' schools to kind of deal with the spacing challenge. So when the older kids come back next week, uh, they're going to yeah. bring their own spacing challenges with them. And with them, they're going to compound the spacing challenges of the younger kids. Uh, we haven't seen the details exactly how uh, that will work. So I'm sure you and I will chat about that. We will. Thank you, Shane. Always a pleasure, Simi. That is Shane Woodford in Denmark, of course, former CKNW reporter, talking about how the reopening is going in those countries. We'll be talking to him, of course, more about that next week. This is Mornings with Simi. Vancouver Coastal Health was investigating one of the community cases that had been uh, identified, and it became apparent there were a number of other people in the workplace who were positive. All right, so that was last month when Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry alerted all of us to one of the outbreaks at the local poultry processing facility that we heard so much about. We also know that the Cargill plant near High River, Alberta, had almost a 1,000 employees test positive, and then they had another 500 transmissions that were associated with that facility. So the Manufacturing Safety Alliance of BC is working here in this province to make sure that the people who do work at manufacturing and food processing facilities are protected. We wanted to learn more about that process. Lisa McGuire is with us, the CEO of the Manufacturing Safety Alliance of BC. Lisa, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simeon. Thank you for inviting me on the show. How challenging has this time been for you in the uh, Safety Alliance? Well, absolutely. It has been with our industry designated as essential services, you know, to develop safe operations in compliance with the public health orders. So, so certainly, in our role as a health and safety association, helping support their success in implementing effective plans to protect their people. Yeah, what do those plans look like? How can somebody who is going to work in one of these facilities know they are going to be protected? Well, it looks at a number of key areas, um, especially when you look at the hierarchy of controls. So ensuring that there are engineering controls considered first, things like plexiglass guards in between workers that many of our businesses put in place on the assembly lines, as well as administrative controls, so policies and process to ensure that workers who are sick stay home. And then the last line really is the PPE. We've heard a lot about PPE, but ensuring that we're looking at those other areas of control is, is really important. Is the sick leave, is that an important issue? Because we heard about how in these, some of these facilities, some of the workers came to work sick because they didn't want to lose the job or get in trouble. Yeah, no, leadership plays a critical role, you know, through their actions and decisions. They influence what is important in the business. This in turn impacts the choices made on the shop floor. So ensuring that you establish a culture within the organization that knows how important it is to stay home when you're sick to protect your coworkers, your family, and our communities. Has that been like a, a key to for the leadership to learn that? Well, it's just, I mean, they set the tone at the top. So their decisions on ensuring that this is required and encouraged for workers to ensure that they stay home. And, it's, and it is, becomes a way of, of business. And this is really important. So this is 
is some of these key areas that we are reinforcing and providing support to our memberships on because it is a critical component. Right. So do you see these things then as being permanent? Is this a permanent shift in the industry? Well, certainly in terms of the foreseeable future. So we've heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry, this is the new normal. So these safe operations will need to be in place. Has there been a trouble with getting people to take some of these jobs or is, is staffing an issue at all? Certainly the, there's been a higher level of anxiety as there has been for all of us. So ensuring that the companies have programs to help support, you know, mental health strategies are important and answering questions when they arise. So communication really being essential on a regular, continuous basis that is is answering those difficult questions so that workers feel safe at work. And do you think they do feel safe at work? Well, this is what, you know, having these processes and policies and communication strategy in place helps support them on. If you have really effective communication that addresses those concerns, then they are able to feel safe at work. Well, we hope they do. Alisa, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for inviting me on the show, Simi. That is Lisa McGuire, CEO of the Manufacturing Safety Alliance of BC. And we know that there have been a lot of concern about, you know, workers who work on those assembly lines. Uh, For instance, the workers at those local poultry processing facilities where the couple of the outbreaks happened there. You've had the Cargill plant near High River, Alberta, which is the single biggest outbreak that we've had in the entire country. Uh, Workers were afraid to say that they were sick and they were still coming to work. And so now that's something that the industry, as you just heard Lisa McGuire there, point out that they are trying to uh, work with, make sure workers have their personal protective equipment, make sure that they've got you know the plastic shielding, all of that in place so that they can keep doing the essential work that they do. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We know it will be hard and complicated, complex to move a large number of people into safe spaces with rapidity. But if this pandemic is as threatening as we're being told, and it is, we absolutely need to take massive action. That's Jeremy Hunka with the Union Gospel Mission. He was outlining that huge challenge of rehousing or just housing residents of Oppenheimer Park. So if you pass the park over the weekend, then you have really seen something remarkable. Construction fencing all around the block and not a single tent. More than 250 of the people who had been living in the park are now being housed in a mix of temporary hotel arrangements and more permanent homes. We wanted to talk more about this process, how it all happened, and some of the challenges ahead. Joining us now is Shane Simpson, the Minister of Social Development and Poverty Reduction. Good morning, and thank you for being here. Uh, Good morning. So what is the situation now? You managed to get everybody out of Oppenheimer Park. Uh, We did, and uh, they're out and... relocated into hotels and and other accommodation and as you said the uh, the city and the park board uh have secured the site and the process of restoration of of the park has has begun how challenging was this like where did all these spaces come from to house these people 
Um, well, it it moved. It happened very quickly, and uh, and it was a challenge. Uh, BC Housing had been um, identifying and accessing spaces around the province uh, after the uh, the pandemic really hit, uh, in expectation that there would be the need to to address uh, address these kind of issues. So they had started the work, and then about the mid of April, uh, the premier brought together a group of ministers and senior officials, uh, and we talked about uh, issues related to homelessness, um, and uh, the decision was made to move forward uh, in the in Victoria and Vancouver, and, and we started there, and in a couple of weeks, we had actually begun the process. Now, why did it take a pandemic to make something like this happen? <clears throat> well, I'm not sure that it took a pandemic, certainly, to get the attention, but the one thing you'll know is that the park, uh, Oppenheimer was under the park board jurisdiction based on the Vancouver Charter, uh, and what changed here is that because we were under the Emergency Provincial Act, the EPA, um, we were in a position to be able to supersede that authority uh, and take uh, provincial jurisdiction to be able to make it happen. So is this something that you feel could have happened earlier? Well, um, I, I think it, 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 it certainly could have. Uh, I don't think that's out of the question. Uh, but a whole lot of things came together. We had the dual crisis that was escalating, uh, both uh, the pandemic and the opioid crisis. Uh, and it became very clear that we were not able to provide the kind of services and supports uh, to people in the park during this period uh, to be able to to address their issues. And so it, it elevated the crisis and the decision was made to go now. So some people are in more permanent housing, some are in a temporary situation. What happens to the people in the temporary situation? Well, we're in the process of identifying permanent housing. Our objective, and we've been pretty clear about it, uh, uh, is uh, to move all of the people over from uh, temporary accommodation to more permanent housing over the next number of months. Uh, and uh, with the hope that uh, nobody falls uh, back onto the street uh, because we don't have a permanent uh, option available to them. And what about, we've been hearing reports as well, that some tents were then put up at Crab Park after Oppenheimer Park was cleared. Yeah, I was in a parking lot down by Crab Park. Uh, um, uh, There were six or eight people, ten people, I think something like that, that uh, went down uh, there and, and, and pitched a couple of tents. Uh, they're on port land, and uh, and my understanding is that the port is is looking at how they address that. So, will there be an effort made, from your understanding, that that won't be allowed to stay there? Yeah, that and and uh, and I think it's the port that's uh, responding to that. It's an area where I believe the port had an injunction in place that I think still stands in regard to uh, another matter down there around the development and extension of one of their uh, their container terminals. How difficult of a process was this? You know, many people who had been in Oppenheimer said that they didn't want to be moved indoors. Clearly, we see that now with people setting up at Crab Park. How difficult is it to find housing for people, for some who may not want housing? Well, the reality is that the vast, vast majority of people were very willing. Uh, We went into the park. We did one-on-one assessments with people. Uh, A key part of that was peers. We brought uh, a team of peers in, people who live in the community, who understand the community, who relate in a community way to people, as well as health officials, folks from my ministry and other ministries. Um, And uh, we did the individual assessments of people's health and social needs, and then uh, looked at at housing uh, offers there, the vast, vast majority of people were more than ready and willing uh, 
uh, and excited about the option. Uh, it was very few people who uh, resisted uh, housing. And at the end, I think we had uh, a couple of people who were particularly resistant at the end. And, uh, and, and they, I think they eventually moved on, but they were absolutely offered housing. Has this taught us what to do moving forward, though? Like, will there ever be another situation like Oppenheimer Park? Well, I, I wouldn't suggest that there there won't be, but then uh, the challenge of homelessness and everything that comes with it is big. It's bigger than Oppenheimer. It's bigger than the Victoria situation uh, at Pandora and Topaz. So I wouldn't say that it won't happen. Uh, and the reality is Oppenheimer, this is the fourth time there's been uh, an encampment at Oppenheimer that I can recall over the years. So it's possible, but we're hoping that uh, that it won't occur at Oppenheimer, and we're hoping we can make more progress uh, uh, in a variety of ways. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest for a minute that this is absolutely the last time this will happen. Right. But was there a lot learned here in terms of how the approach was taken, how to help people move into housing? I think we did learn. I think where we really learned a lot about what we believe works goes back actually a couple of years when we put modular housing in place. And it became clear that the success was the housing, but what was really important was the wraparound services, uh, the food, uh, meals, uh, primary health care, support for mental health and addictions. Those services being attached to the housing made a huge difference. Uh, Putting a roof over somebody's head was absolutely essential, but without those supports, um, it, it it had sometimes had trouble sticking. All right, so I'm sure, hopefully, we won't have to talk much more about this, but Minister Simpson, thank you for your time. Thank you. That is Shane Simpson, the Minister of Social Development and Poverty Reduction, talking about what's been happening over the weekend. You go by Oppenheimer Park today, and it is very different than what you had seen in recent months. The park has been cleared out. It was done by Saturday at noon. Now there's fencing up all over the place. It's in the middle now of a restoration process where just about everybody was moved into accommodation. And as you heard the minister say there, yes, uh, there were a few people who were resistant to the idea of any kind of accommodation. They have set up tents at Crab Park. There's about I guess, half a dozen tents there. Port of Vancouver will be dealing with that as that's on their property. They've been given a deadline. I believe it is at some point today. So we'll keep you posted on how that goes. But it doesn't sound like there will be any kind of uh, permanent encampment now at Crab Park moving forward. But there's more to come on that. You want to weigh in? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. My sister died alone and she did not have to. She was never given the opportunity to be able to have someone to speak up for her in her time of need. Now that woman's name was Eris Knight. She was 40 years old. She had cerebral palsy and she died alone in Peace Arch Hospital near the end of last month. You probably remember hearing and watching those stories. Now this came just a week after the Surrey South MLA, Stephanie Kedu, wrote an editorial about the gaps in care that COVID-19 was creating for vulnerable persons. So has anything gotten better? We learn our lesson from that case or are there still challenges? Well, Stephanie Kedu joins us now to talk more about this. Good morning and thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. You wanted to raise this issue again today. Are things not getting better? Well, no, not and certainly not fast enough. Um, we we still see the advocates uh, issuing uh, open letters last week um, on Thursday 
to write to the provincial government urging and, and essentially demanding a clear and consistent provincial policy about the rights of people with disabilities in healthcare settings. Is this a provincial thing or is this, does it depend on the institution in terms of the rules that allow people in? Well, that's the, that's the part that's difficult. The, there, there does appear to be some level of, of understanding or policy in that Donnie, Dr. Bonnie Henry stated that hospitals should be making exceptions to restrictions to accommodate people with disabilities. But it's not happening across the province. It's certainly not happening consistently. So the problem is that people don't understand how to interpret the policy on the front lines. And so more clarity is definitely needed. This appears to be the case across the country. Um, that once once again, as is quite as the community, the disability community is quite uh, used to, right. uh, disability needs are being pushed to the bottom of the pack, and that that just symbolizes the unconscious bias that still exists in society. What kind of challenges are we talking about here? Mm-hmm. Is it not being allowed to have the caregiver there, or just not having family supports, or what? What is it? Well. The, the, everybody understands that in the state we're in uh, with COVID, that precautions are necessary in the hospitals to keep everyone safe. Nobody's questioning that. But for a person with a disability who can't communicate um, and requires somebody to interpret for them, for someone who, who can't um, feed themselves or, or is restricted by something quite severe, there needs to be accommodation that their caregiver can be there to assist them. Um, that's the only way they can receive equitable health health care in that setting. Right, because we know that even if you're, you know, relatively able-bodied and don't have those issues, you still need help in the hospital. So that's even more so, I, w- I would think, for people who have disabilities. Right. So some somebody who can't um, who can't feed themselves, who can't speak for themselves, um, who can't uh, toilet themselves. These sort of things um, don't go away when you go to the hospital. And and, in, and as everybody knows, when you're in the hospital, it's hard enough uh, if you're fully uh, fully able to communicate to understand what's going on and what you're being asked uh, asked of and, and things. So it's more pronounced for people with disabilities, and that's the concern: is that there are people who have severe disabilities who are not being accommodated when they go to hospital. And we need a clear and consistent policy across the province. It needs to be articulated without room for interpretation at the front line. And uh, that's what's missing. Have people been reaching out to you? Have you been hearing these stories? I have been hearing the stories, um, not just on this. This is obviously the the most urgent concern because it, it's the scariest thing for people around uh, being in hospital and not being able to communicate for themselves. Um, but there are other issues related to uh, living with a significant disability in the time of COVID-19 um, around uh, access to uh, regular health supplies in the community, access to care aids in the community. So there are other issues as well, and, and people in the community have reached out, and, and we've been discussing these and bringing them forward since uh, very early on in the second week of this. Right, and have you reached out to the health authorities or to the health minister? Like, what kind of response have you gotten? Right, uh, so I've reached out uh, to the health minister, to Minister Simpson as well, um, as have a number of the organizations. Many of them sit on advisories for government. There is work going on. It just doesn't seem to be a priority. Um, we're getting no answers to the questions and to the issues, and that's the challenge. Is it not also filtering down 
perhaps like, oh yeah, well the rules are there, but it's inconsistent in enforcing those rules. It's it's definitely not being communicated effectively. Um, And and that just, again, goes to show there's, there's an unconscious bias that people hold that, oh, it's fine. It's, it's fine. Everybody understands. Well, no, it's not fine. People don't understand and people with disabilities are lost in the middle. Um, You know, government's been able to do a lot during the last couple of months. Um, and, and it's been a very difficult uh, time, I understand that. But we're able to create an opening plan for the province. Um, we should be able to put in place a policy and clarify it for the care of people with disabilities. And how do you think, what, what would that look like then? What should an institution be doing? In the case of a person uh, with a significant disability being admitted to hospital for COVID or for other reasons, um, they're they're caregiver, whether that person is a paid caregiver or a family caregiver, needs to be allowed in. And if that, that requires uh, that individual to be, um, to be gowned up, etc., that is completely understandable and acceptable. Uh, it, is, it is not, uh, we're not suggesting that a person with disability should have, you know, people coming and going. It, it is understandable that that needs to be one dedicated person, etc., but it needs to be there and needs to be consistent and people need to not have, or people should not have to be um, having their family or others advocate loudly for them um, from outside, trying to make sure that that person has that necessary essential support in hospital. It's a human right issue. Right, that seems like such a simple thing. Yeah. And it's still not happening. No, uh, the, the conversations about this and the draft policy or draft clarity around, around the policy has apparently been in the works for six weeks. I've been requesting to see a copy. Um, I've suggested that we have a, a joint, you know, a joint uh, working group or, or something to, to assist. Um, this isn't a partisan issue. This is just something that needs to get done. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, sharing it with us this morning. Thank you for taking the time, Simi. It is Stephanie Cadieu, the MLA for South Surrey, uh, talking about the issue of making sure that people who have disabilities who are in hospital have somebody, like their caregiver, be able to come and help them. Seems like a simple thing, as I said, but apparently it's not happening uh, because of the COVID-19 situation and the health rules around that, uh, but not enough exceptions are being made for people with disabilities who need that extra assistance. Now, I've already gotten some emails on this from people who have stories to tell. If you have one, simi at cknw.com and let me know your experience with this. We'll be following up on that story. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know the restaurant industry has been probably one of the biggest industries that has been impacted by COVID-19. It has upended future plans, that's for sure. No more so than, say, Bishop's Restaurant in Kitsilano. Remember, a couple of months ago, we were talking to John Bishop about his retirement plans. Well, has anything changed? Because it sounds like even the process to retirement isn't going the way I'm sure John Bishop thought it would. And he joins us now to talk more about that. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. How are you doing? Oh, I'm like everybody. I'm hanging in here, and it's so good to hear your voice. Um, yeah, I miss the thing that I've done, you know, a lot of my life, which is run my little restaurant on 4th Avenue in Kitts. But um, there seems to be some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, yes, my retirement plans are on hold. It seems really? Like permanently. <laughs> but, you know, this this last few months has been a a real uh, trial uh, in as much that, you know, what would I do if I didn't have my restaurant, you know? 
retirement is, was really uh, so was forced upon me in a way, um, or rather the idea of it, you know, by impending rent increases and taxes and so on. But um, anyway, I've decided to get back onto my horse and uh, we're starting with takeout this Wednesday. Really? This so, Wednesday. So, John, yep. let me get this straight. You you were going to retire. You were set yep. to retire. You made yes. the plans. COVID-19 forced you into early retirement and you said, what am I thinking? I don't want to do this. I, I could afford to retire, but I couldn't afford to run my business. What a terrible, and I could have crossroads that yeah. is. But um, uh, with the help and support of my customers, you know, they really want me to stay open. They want me to, you know, continue to do what I've loved to do. And my staff are incredible. They, they've been supportive. Um, so, yeah. And so the idea of doing takeout is really just to start, restart the process of, and rebuilding, hopefully, um, the the bishops. Yep. Okay, so you're starting takeout on Wednesday. How Wednesday, will that be available? Wednesday afternoon from four to eight. Okay. It's 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 called uh, bishops at home. Yeah. Okay, so from the restaurant, like, how do people order that? From the restaurant. Yeah, um, we're doing um, a, a pickup uh, from four to eight with a menu that will post is going to be posted today online. Some some uh, classic dishes that we've done for years death by chocolate duck confit we're doing a baked pasta dish some beautiful salad yep so has this had to you had to change how you think about food here because now it's not just hot to the plate and presented now you got to package it up for takeout that's right that's right well i don't think I've, i've you know i've been talking to colleagues in the industry about about the packaging and you don't really need to reinvent the wheel as you know something that's practical for delivery or for pickup um you know making sure it looks nice and it's nice and hot and so on and comforting yeah okay so what about after though after this well, is all back to normal um as as hopefully we get the green light to to not to go back to normal at all, but uh, even our small little space to to um, you know provide enough seating for possibly twenty people at one seating. Uh, in in our we seat fifty normally, and uh, hopefully the regulations allow for us to perhaps think about a little patio in the back. Right. So you're going to actually stay full fledged in the restaurant business. Yes. Yes. <laughs> You've got new vitality. Yes. <laughs> You've got new vitality for this. It sounds like new enthusiasm. I, well, I, it, it, in, in many ways it has, but of course, like all of us, in many ways it's just been exhausting uh, mentally to think. You know, this is something we've never experienced before. I mean, all the suppliers, Simi. You think of all the resorts and places that are affected. Just dreadful. Can't can't comprehend it really. So, John, then, are you going to keep... What about the rent increases? Everything that you were worried about before... Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you. Thanks to um, my landlord, who's waived our rent for this period, not the taxes. You know, our building, the portion that I rent, um, the building itself is, is praised at about $8 million. And we, as, as tenants, are on the hook to... Uh, to pay those taxes, so that's the the toughest part. And uh, you know, going forward, of course, that'll still be the same, I'm sure. But anyway, the rent has been waived for the time being, so that that helps us a lot. And then the federal and provincial government initiatives have helped. So you think you might be able to hang in there for a little while longer? Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping so. Yes. Well, who do you we don't know going forward? Um, 
how it's going to be. I, I can't imagine it'll ever be the same. No. I, I also wonder, John, what about your friends and family? What did they say? I know I remember you telling me that your family yeah. had said, when are you going don't to retire? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Don't. Well, they've taken, uh, you know, a, a somewhat of a back seat the last few weeks because I've got my heels dug in. Um, and I say it's with the support of some of my customers and friends. It just They really want me to continue if I can. Yeah, I'm sure you've been talking to many other people in the business as well. Yes, I have. What are they telling you? Like, what do you think the restaurant industry is going to look like when this is done? Well, uh, I have a dear friend, well, many dear friends in the restaurant business, and one of whom, Vikram Vidge, we've been taking walks together and talking about this. Um, and he has a much larger operation than I, I have. Um, but he... Um, He's quietly, you know, he's he's pretty quiet on the whole thing, but he is just working, going ahead, trying to maintain through things like home delivery right. uh, his business. Um, but I think we're all waiting to see, you know. Yeah. There's not much else we can do. Um, I mean, the hotels that, that have had to lay off people, cruise ships, it's just... Um, I mean, I feel very fortunate in a way that I was in the business, you know, um, for the years that I've been here. And, and uh, yeah, but going forward, mm, keep a smile on my face. I guess so. And you know what? I'm actually quite grateful because now before I thought you were going to be all booked up. No way I could get a reservation before oh. you retired. Now it turns out I can order takeout. So I'll be doing uh, that. John. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today, John. Good. And listen, good luck. Thank you so much, Simi. It's good to hear your voice. Good to talk to you as well. That is John Bishop. He, of course, is the owner of the iconic Bishop's Restaurant in Kitsilano on West 4th there. He was all set to retire, and now it turns out he is not. As he said, he has dug his heels in on this. So if you've always wanted to eat at Bishop's, this is a great chance to do so. They are starting takeout this week, Wednesday, 4 to 8. You have to phone them up. You have to go down and pick it up there, but well worth it to have dinner made for you by John Bishop, and then you can eat in your own home. Just one of the ways that so many businesses have been trying to just do their best during this situation, they deserve that attention and a shout out for doing so.